you, Pete. <laughs> Great to see you. Uh, it is so good to be home. We, uh, it is awesome being in Israel, obviously, but there is nothing like coming home. And uh, I, I'll tell you what, I know, know why. Today, I'm just so excited. I don't know what it'll be tomorrow. I might be bored by tomorrow. But today... <laughs> I am so excited to be back, and you know, it's just like such a privilege to do what I get to do, to lead and teach here, and you are such an amazing group of people to be able to lead and teach, and it's just an incredible honor to be a part of that. So thanks for following in, um, in Israel, and a lot of you followed our journey, and uh, we're already getting lots of emails, people saying, can you sign me up for the next one, even though we don't know when or how much. Um, <laughs> And so uh, we're going to try to figure out what to do with that, but we are going to be going next spring and the following spring, at least two more trips. Um, and so um, thanks for following along. Um, it's a little tough way to be coming back and to come back now and have to go off of coffee for a week, so I'm not sure <laughs> who planned all of that. Um, but I think it was probably me before I realized the implications. <laughs> Um, but we are going to go into our, our new series, right? We're about to start a new series. Excited about that. Um, and uh, so if you're, if you're brand new, welcome. My name's Michael, one of the pastors. And inside your program is a green and white, unless things have changed, a green and white uh, insert that's going to help you follow along. So you're going to need your Bibles, you're going to need your apps, you're going to need your insert. And if you guys are all ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. And God, we're just excited to be here at the start of a new series. And I know it always seems to me like the start of a new series is the start of a new era. It's um, something new for our church. It's something that you've been planning a long time. It's, it always leads us into new territory. It's always taking more ground. It's always doing something inside us we're different after than we were before. And God, as I look back over the years and see each series and the way you put them together, it's just kind of stand back and on and you know I'm not as clear at this one, exactly where you're going or taking us, why we're here, but I'm just so excited to be here. And so I pray that um, today that you'd show up, you'd do what only you could do, you'd be our teacher, you'd be our leader, you'd be our guide, you'd open our hearts, and most of all, you'd speak very personally to us, take the words that we're going to be sharing, that speak them personally, write them on our hearts, we know how to respond, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, yeah. amen. Well, our story starts today. It's a dusty road, and it's a busy town. And, uh, he'd grown up here, and um, when he was growing up, I mean, he had aspirations like many of the other young boys, men of his age. And, of course, so did his parents. But there came a point where he had to make a decision, and... It was follow his father's path or follow a different path. And the different path was going to be harder. It was a long shot, but the rewards would be huge. There's no question that the cost would be great um, in many different ways. And there's no question it would require compromise of the way he was raised, the way he was brought up. But he struggled through that temptation. He came to the conclusion that it was worth the risk. And so he'd taken it, and like the Robert Frost poem, two roads diverged in the middle of my life, I took the one less traveled one. It's made the difference every day. And so this day, as he gets up and go to work, it's not worked out exactly like he thought. 
It seems like his destiny is set in concrete. Things have not worked out. The cost has been greater than he thought. He wished he would have listened. But in his world, there is no way out. There are no second chances. There are no new beginnings. And so as he gets up that day and gets ready for work, he heads for the job that he has come to hate something that he wishes for something more and yet sees no way out. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series, and I'm so excited. I was thinking this week, it's kind of like when you plan a wedding, right? You plan a wedding, like if you're the bride or the groom, well, say if you're the bride, because the groom doesn't care, but if you're... (laughs) If you are the bride, you have invested so much time, right? And the people that are coming, it's like, oh, it's, that's the day. Yeah, we're coming. We love. We can. We're here. We're excited. Sure, we're excited. But I'm telling you, if you are the bride, you've invested a lot in this. And I, I feel like today it's like the start of a wedding. And this is something God has been kind of putting in my heart and soul. I started working on this last August, and I am so excited uh, to be here and really, like every series, you know, sometimes people will say to me at, at our church, I remember in the early years, I'd been here three, four, five years, the early years, they'd say to me, you know, it's just amazing. I look back over uh, kind of what you've done since you've come and this series and how each one led to the next. And it took the church from this point to that point, And it is just absolutely brilliant. And I would always say the same thing. I agree. It is absolutely brilliant. But I have to be honest, I had nothing to do with that. I was just like <laughs> listening and following, doing the next thing. And you look back and you say like, this is amazing, right? And, and so anytime you go into a new series, I, I'm just excited because I know that God's going to move in a powerful way and we are going to be a different church 20 years from now no, <laughs> uh, than, than we are now. Someone was uh, asking this week, they said, hey, I was talking to someone in the series, they're really excited. They're thinking, like, what, it's going to be nine weeks, 12 weeks? And this guy was saying, no, probably like two years. And like, two years? It's like, well, it's a long book, you know? It's, it's a long book. So we'll probably take some breaks now and then. We'll do some different things. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think it's going to be a while. It's 28 chapters, you know? All right, so uh, here, let's, let's start out. You see on your note sheet, the name of the series, Unfiltered, Capturing a True image of Jesus. Um, I, I think that most people would agree, at least most educated people, and I don't mean if you disagree, you're uneducated, but you might be. Um, but I, I'm just saying maybe, I said maybe, uh, maybe, I'm, I'm leaving out, you may be the one person. Uh, yeah, I told you, I'm excited, I'm excited. Uh, I think most people who've thought about this, most people who've studied this would agree, and I don't care if you're a believer in Jesus or not, The Jesus of Nazareth is the most influential person in all of human history, hands down. You don't have to believe he's the son of God, but but I mean, if you just study it objectively, uh, you would come to this uh, uh, conclusion. In fact, I put a couple quotes on your note sheet that as far as I know, these are not necessarily what we would consider like Bible-believing believers, but the first one is from a man named Yaroslav Pelikan. So with a name like that, you know the guy is brilliant, right? He's... uh, (laughs) He's from Yale, of course. Uh, he, he actually passed away earlier, like in 2005 or something like that. But at one point in time, he was the president of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So no slouch. And this is what he says. He says, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 
20 centuries. If it, if, uh, if it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Uh, next quote from uh, a scholar named Michael Grant. He's an ancient, uh, ancient historian, like a Roman history uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, expert, written several books. He says, the most potent figure, not only in the history of religion, but in the world history as a whole, is Jesus Christ, the maker of one of the, revo- one of the few revolutions which have lasted. Millions of men and women for century after century have found his life and teaching overwhelmingly significant and moving, and there is ample reason in this later 20th century why this should still be so. And yet the crazy thing is, as you look at our culture today, and and whether you're here today, you're a follower of Jesus, or you're just checking out uh, Jesus, and you're kind of seeing what he has to offer the crazy thing is, in our Western culture today, we know are learning less and less about who Jesus is, uh, what he taught, what he said, kind of the facts of his life. And so the interesting thing is when a culture loses touch with, the, with the, kind of the facts, what happens is we all tend to recreate Jesus in our own image. Uh, and, and to use a metaphor that we're going to be using throughout this series we tend to see Jesus through certain lenses, or think of it like a camera analogy, different lenses you put on, um, and we come to see him in a very filtered way based on filters that have built up over time, either in church or culture as a whole. And so our goal in this series is really to go back in time and kind of recapture a truer image of who Jesus is and who Jesus was uh, in his context um, and to kind of rediscover uh, him in an unfiltered way. Uh, and the way we're going to do this is we're going to go back to one of the earliest um, and most important documents, ancient documents, that describe the life and teaching of Jesus, and that we call it the Gospel of Matthew. Now, if you're new at this, the book of Matthew is part of our New Testament. It's the very first book in our New Testament. Um, and so what I want to do today is to start today is by asking some key questions. I'll think of it like a reporter's questions, you know, the who, what, where, why, kind of a journalist's questions uh, about the book of Matthew. Uh, we're going to do this very quickly because I know we have different levels of interest in here. Some of you love this stuff. I was talking to my wife ahead of time and I said, hey, these messages are always tough because like some people love this stuff. She goes, yeah, I love this stuff. I go, yeah, I know, but some people care less. So it's hard to, like, let's just get into it. You know, so it's hard to kind of find the, the middle ground. So what I'm going to try to do is kind of hit some of this stuff, at least at a level that we can answer some of the basic questions. So there in your note sheet, I want to ask four questions. Actually, there's going to be five, but it says four. <laughs> But it says, uh, Matthew's gospel, a quick uh, intro. So I want to ask the who, what, where kind of questions. All right, so let's just jump in. Uh, first of all, let's start with the who. Uh, and by who, what I meant to say is, is who wrote Matthew? Now, um, if you're new at this, you might say, well, duh, uh, Matthew. You know, it says in my Bible, the gospel of Matthew. Um, where did you go to school? Um, but the reality is uh, none of our gospels uh, have copyrights. Uh, none of them have authors' pages. None of them have a preface. Uh, these titles were added later by the early church, right? And so, um, so, so it's actually not as clear as you might guess um, uh, that uh, 
but what we do know is that as we, as we study the book of Matthew, both its internal evidence, kind of uh, evidence in the book, and external evidence, so as uh, the testimony of the, the leaders of the early movement of Jesus, we often call those the early church fathers, like starting the second century on. The, early church the, the testimony is remarkably consistent that the author of, uh, of this first gospel is a man named Matthew, who was a tax collector who had a powerful encounter with Jesus and became a follower of Jesus, became one of the uh, inner 12. And then he used his skills. Remember, in the ancient world, only about 15% of people could read and write. He used his skills later on to kind of document the life and teaching of Jesus. Now, this kind of makes sense because um, otherwise it doesn't make sense why everyone would agree that he wrote this because like, why would you choose Matthew if you've read the Gospels at all? You know, Matthew hardly doesn't, he hardly comes up at all. And so if you're going to make up something, why don't you make up something a little bit makes more sense, right? So, but as an example of that, I put one quote from a second century, so we're in the 100s, uh, one of the leaders of the early church, again, we call them the church fathers, called Irenaeus. He was the bishop, head of the church at Lyons, which is in part of France today. Of course, it wasn't called France then, but uh, this is what he said. Matthew published a book of the gospel among the Hebrews, in other words, for Jewish people, uh, in their own dialect. So that'd be either, either writing in Hebrew or writing in probably Aramaic at the time, while uh, the apostles Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome. And so that would be like in the 60s AD. We'll talk about dating in just a minute and founding the church, right? So, so the consistent evidence of early church fathers, everyone agrees, no dissenting voices, that Matthew is the, the author. So we're going to go with that theory for this series, right? So uh, it's not, you know, like there's, there's nothing, you don't like sign his name at the end, uh, Matthew, um, but uh, we're going to go with that theory. Uh, number two, uh, the second question is what? And, and by what, I mean, what is a gospel? Now, if you've been around the block as a believer, you may know that the word gospel in Greek means good news. Uh, the, the Greek word is euangelion, um, and it's actually a, a, a technical word in the Roman world. Um, it was a word that was associated with the rule of the Roman emperors. So in other words, when a new emperor would come to power, that was a really scary time in the ancient world because of obviously civil wars and all. And so when, when you had a clear emperor that came into power, uh, messengers would be sent throughout the Roman Empire uh, with the message, and it would be called the euangelion, good news. A new emperor has been born, or maybe a new heir to the throne has been born, or the, uh, em- the, the, the next emperor has come of age. And so it was kind of a technical term for an announcement. So that's what euangelion means. But, but the question I'm really asking is like, well, what, yeah, but what kind of genre is this literature? Like, what is this literature? And it's interesting because if you ask the question of scholars a hundred years ago, they would have said, well, um, yeah, it's not really a biography. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a new genre of literature that the early church kind of created to tell the story of Jesus. But what's interesting is in more recent times, almost all scholars would agree now that it really is a biography. It's just not like our biographies. If you've read ancient biographies, you know that they're not really like ours. They don't spend a lot of time on interior psychology uh, of uh, early formative childhood developments. Uh, They don't talk about their physical appearance a whole lot, that sort of thing. And so what scholars would say now, most scholars would say, now, no, it really is a biography. It's just sort of like, a, like ancient biographies, right? It's going it's to focus mostly on his public life, 
um, that we're going to see when he starts his ministry. Uh, next question is when, and we gotta, this has a couple, couple levels to it. In other words, when does the action happen in this, in, this, uh, in this story, in this account? And then secondly, when was it written? Two very different questions. So the first question, when did it happen? So we would date the events in Matthew's gospel, uh, starting with, say, the birth of Jesus, somewhere between 7 and 4 B.C. Now, a lot of you probably know this, but our calendar is based on the birth of Jesus. But the monk who figured it out, who, who created this calendar first, was off by a few years. Right? So that's why like, you have the birth of Jesus. His most likely date is 4 BC. It, was, you know, it should have been like zero, right? but he was just off a little bit. So, um, so anyway, but 7 to 4 BC uh, is where scholars would put it. We'd put the death of Jesus probably at 30 AD, but uh, some would put it at 33. So somewhere in that time zone. Uh, but the question, when was it written? We've already seen what Irenaeus said in the second century. He said it was written when Peter and Paul were founding the church in Rome, which would put it in the mid-60s AD. Um, most scholars today would put it somewhere in that range, or maybe as later, as later as 80, 85 uh, AD. So if you do the math, you're somewhere in that you know, 30 to 50 to 60 years after the events. Now, uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, if that's true, it still means that there would still be some eyewitnesses around, most likely of that. But uh, to us as modern 21st century people, and I want you to catch this, one of our big goals in this series is to get to leave the 21st century behind until the end of the message when we say, what does it mean for us? Like, what we want to do is we want to go back in time and we want to start thinking like a first century Roman. We want to think like first century Jews. Because it's impossible to understand what Jesus is saying without understanding the context. It's really interesting. If you've been here for a length of time, you know that when we're studying 1 Corinthians, we spent a lot of time talking about what was going on in Corinth. How can you understand what's, what's right? And if we're, if we're, if we're studying uh, Ephesians, we spend a lot of time what was going on in, in Ephesus. But what's interesting is we say the Gospels, we often don't do that. We just pick them up and start reading them as if they were written for us. But to understand them, we have to go back and understand first century Israel, just like first century Corinth or first century uh, Ephesus. So to us, when we look back, we say, wow, you know, written 30 years later or maybe 50 years, that seems like a really long time. How do you know they got things right? Things would change over time. You often hear that. But what's crazy is in the ancient world, this was really fast. Like, I've been reading a lot of uh, uh, Roman uh, histories in, in, in preparation. Like, uh, I've, you know, huge biographies on, like, Cicero or Augustus Caesar or Roman lives or things like that. And these things, the sources for that are usually 100, 200, 300 years after the time. So in the ancient world, I want you to, they had a totally different mindset. In the ancient world, there was no public, there was no printing press. So documents could be forged. So the way the ancients looked at it is, how do you know you can trust something if it's been passed on verbally accurately? What we call oral tradition. So for example, if right now I started saying, hey, I'm going I'm to do the Pledge of Allegiance right now. And about halfway through, I decided I was going to insert a line or change something. You know? All of us, you would all say, hey, wait a second, you got that wrong. It's like, why? Do you, have a, do you all have this like on your phone? You all keep a copy you know, on your wall? Like, 
Like, did you, you know, you have a printed? No, no, because you learned it orally. And once you learn something orally and we all agree with it, it's actually a very effective way of passing something on. And that's how the ancient world thought. In fact, there in your note sheet, I put a quote from uh, a historian named John Dixon, who's a historian at a university in Australia. And in his book, uh, The Christ Files, which is a great book, by the way, it's a, it's a book about everything we know about Jesus outside of the Bible, right? So anything in ancient history that's written about Jesus by Tacitus or, you know, Suetonius or anyone like that that's outside anyway. But he says, um, today we think of writing as the best way to preserve and disseminate important information. But for most of world history, this was simply not the case before the invention of the printing press, which was 15th century, and the explosion of literacy ignited, human societies were principally oral, known as listening uh, societies. This means they learned important material not by reading it, but by hearing it. Keep in mind, on about 10 to 15% of people, only 10 to 15% of people in the first century Mediterranean world would read. The important point is that in a period when few people could read and even fewer owned books, Writing things down was not the most effective way to preserve and promote material intended for the masses. The most practical and trusted means was through oral tradition. Right? Uh, now, here's, now, I want to give you the next question. And this one's not on your note sheet because I cut it out for time, but it's Saturday night, so who cares? So uh, <laughs> the question is where, all right? The question is where. where. And by where, I mean where does the action take place? And the only reason I want to mention this quickly is that uh, if you've read the Gospels, you know that almost exclusively that they take place in what we would call today Israel. But I want to highlight this, that remember in, in, in the first century, Israel was not its own nation, right? It was a province of uh, the different part of province of Rome. And so to speak of it accurately, I would speak of the province of Syria or the, or the province of, uh, of Judea. These would be large provinces. Now, Within the Gospels, there's areas within those provinces like Galilee and Samaria and even Judea. But in from first century, like if you were reading first century documents, they wouldn't call it Israel. Are you with me here? So I just want to point that out that throughout this series, I will refer to it as Israel because it would be very confusing if I said Syria or Judea or something like that. But, um, but, but that's where it takes place. And then the last one is why. And in, in a sense, this is the most important. Why did Matthew write this? And again, we don't know for sure because he didn't write a preface, right? Like there's no ancient, no ancient documents don't have a preface usually. And so we have to, we have to compare kind of the internal evidence of, of the story he tells and the, the events he chooses to highlight and his editorial comments to kind of read, and then external evidence of what people said like Irenaeus to kind of try to figure it out. But it seems pretty clear, a couple of things, that Matthew is writing for Jewish readers, uh, and it's not that Gentiles can't read it, but his primary audience is for Jewish readers. And the point that he's trying to make is that Jesus is the fulfillment of, every, of all Israel's history. Um, so let me, let me give you an example. Um, that if you were to compare, um, if you were to compare the the Bible or the story of Israel, let's call it the story of Israel. If you were to compare the story of Israel to a novel or a screenplay, what Matthew is saying is all the earlier chapters and all the earlier scenes are leading up to the introduction of the key character. 
and that this key character takes the story to its end. Right? That, that's the point. So the theme of fulfillment is, is huge. Um, and so what I want you to catch in this very brief intro, let's just kind of summarize, that, that first of all, that this document that we're going to be looking at is, is one of the earliest and one of the most important, because in the early church, the first uh, 14, 15, 1700 years, it was the most popular gospel, right? So what we're looking at is one of the earliest and most popular and most influential documents about the life and teaching of Jesus. Um, and it's written by a man that, to the best of our understanding, um, was a tax collector, um, someone that had an encounter with Jesus that radically changed his life, who then became part of his inner circle. And he is sharing the story of Jesus because he believes that all of Israel's history, in fact, all the human history, is leading up to this one person, this would be the most important person in human history, that's going to bring all of human history to its appointed end. Right? Now, um, what I want to do today as we launch this series um, is you get a glimpse of Matthew's vision and you get a glimpse of why he's telling this story and what the story's about in the very opening verse. And all we're going to look at today is one verse, all right? So it's Matthew 1, 1. Uh, what's that? Two years. Yeah, that's, yeah that, that's two years, yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> yes, okay. Uh, maybe three years. Um, so, mm. so there in your note, she's section called Jesus of Nazareth, His Family Tree. Now, uh, many times in the ancient biographies, uh, Roman lives, things like that, Ancient Bible, often they would start with uh, some nod to the past, uh, a little bit about a person's family background, if it plays an important part of the story. And so Matthew, in writing his biography, uh, he, he's going to do that. And um, actually, this, his part actually plays a big part in the story. Now, um, so he's going to start his story with a genealogy. And um, if you're like uh, most modern, you know, readers, we'd say like, that is a really boring way, right? If you want to catch your readers from the start, you know, can you imagine today like, you know, sending a manuscript to a publisher and starting with a really long name of a really long list of names you cannot pronounce of people you don't know or care about, right? It's like, it's just not a hot read, you know? Uh, and so um, I, I'm sure that most of us, if you've ever read the Bible and you come to one of these lists, we have two kinds of people in here, right? The kind of people that say, I'm skipping this and going to the good stuff, right? And then we have the other kind, Myers-Briggs line, we call them the J's. I'm reading the whole thing so I can say I read the whole thing. Right? <laughs> now, but this actually plays a huge part in the story, this genealogy, and we'll talk more about this next week. Um, but today I'm just saying one verse because I'm going to kind of slow, ease you into it. But um, this actually plays a huge part. And to understand this emotionally, catch this, as a first century Jew would read this. To understand this emotionally, I need to give you an analogy. And here's the analogy. How many of you have read or watched the trilogy Lord of the Rings? Okay. That's amazing. How many of you have not read or seen? Okay, that's more than I thought. Okay, so good. I can make up whatever I want. Um, uh, yeah, Lord of the Rings about these three mice, and um, 
They each had rings, and they said, I'm the Lord. No, I'm the Lord. Uh, um, okay, so if you've never read Lord of the Rings, you know, it's a, it's a fantasy, right? And it's set in a place called Middle Earth, which is like an alternate universe. Um, and so it's got its own history. It's got its own geography. Um, it has its own heroes and villains and plot lines and destinies. And if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, you know that often genealogies play a very important part in the storyline. So for example, one of my favorite characters is first introduced by the name Strider. So uh, when you first meet Strider, he's at an inn, you meet him at an inn, in the village of Bree, which I like because that's my daughter's name. Anyway, um, (laughs) and uh, I called her Bree instead of Strider. But anyway, um, I know, good move. Um, So anyway, Anyway, you meet him there, and he's, he's tall, uh, he's mysterious, he wears a dark cloak, and it's sort of almost symbolic because he's kind of cloaked in mystery, but uh, he is going to become, uh, he, he obviously knows what he's doing, he's very competent, he moves very fast, he can cover a great deal of territory very rapidly, he is sharp, you're going to learn more and more about him as you go along, um, but, but he becomes sort of the de facto leader of this band of brothers that's marching into harm's way into the evil land of Mordor to, to try to stop the spread of this uh, kind of darkness that's spreading over Middle Earth. Right? And so eventually at some point along the way, it kind of comes to this crescendo where you find out who he is. Like you've kind of sensed this, that there's more to this guy that meets the eye. Um, he, he's a very special guy. Um, one of my favorite characters, right? Very, very noble, brave, uh, fierce, uh, gifted guy. And so you're sensing there's more to him than meets the eye, but there finally comes this place where he is revealed and you discover his true name. And his name is what? Aragorn, right? In fact, I gotta help. Okay, Ron, this is the moment. This is the sword of Aragorn. Now, I keep this in my office. Just dealing with staff, I find it very helpful. It was actually given, in my, when I left my uh, uh, previous church after 20 years, this is one of the gifts they gave me. Had it engraved, I won't read all of that. But, um, like, what else do you give a guy after 20 years? Give him a sword. If you don't know what to do, give him a sword. So, right? So I, I'll put this down here now. All right. So, um, so anyway, you find out that Aragorn actually comes from a, a long line of ancient kings. And so uh, he comes from uh, the legendary kings of Elendil, uh, whose first king was Numenor. And so it's been prophesied that one day a great king will come from this line and it's a very powerful moment in the film or in the book when he's finally crowned as the 26th king of Arnor and the 35th king of Gondor, uniting these, first, these two kingdoms for the first time ever in this high kingdom. And he, and, and he goes on you know, to, to great glory, right? And, and there's this, this moment of great, um, of great power when he's suddenly revealed and you find out that Strider 
is actually Aragorn, the one who will reforge the sword that was broken and lead them into victory. And in a very real sense, that's exactly what Matthew is doing. What Matthew is doing is he's starting off by saying, I want to introduce someone you think of as Strider, but his real name is Aragorn. He is the one who is to come that the prophets have spoken of, and he comes from the right line. And he has come, and he fulfills the requirements to be the true king. And so it's that emotion that we have to get into as we read this, as a Jew would read it. Now, it's interesting because if you look at Matthew 1.1, and we're going to crack open our Bibles, and by the way, it feels good to have a Bible in my head again, I'm telling you what. I love the last series, and we purposely printed verses for new people, make it easier on-ramp, but it feels great to have a Bible in my hand again. So um, anyway, so let's look at verse, uh, chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, in the English, it's only 16 Uh, 16 words, and it goes like this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. And by the way, some of you, if you have an old, I'm reading New International. If you have an older New International version, it will say Jesus Christ. Uh, By the way, it's often confusing. People say, which Bible are you reading? I am using the New International version, but it's the most recent one, the one that's published in 2011. Years ago, I used the 1984 version. I actually prefer that, but at this point, we're getting so far from that that new people coming to Jesus, they get Bibles. That version is no longer available. So about a year ago, I switched over. So sometimes when you're going like, which NIV? Like your NIV doesn't read like my NIV? That's why. Um, Some 2011 version. So some years will say Jesus Christ. We'll talk about them in Uh, the son of David, the son of Abram. So it's only 16 words. Catch this. In the Greek, it's only eight words. But it packs a punch. And I want to break this down for you. Um, Because what's going to take me 15 minutes to explain, if you're a Jew in first century Israel, bingo. Eight words, all it takes. I got it. I got where the story's going. So uh, there in your note sheet, I'm going to break this down. You got some fill in the blanks. Let's hit this real quick. So the first blank is the genealogy. He says, this is the genealogy. Now, that sounds pretty straightforward, but in the Greek, it's two words. And I want to give you these two words. They actually really matter. The first word is the word biblos, okay, biblos. So it's spelled like this, B-I-B-L-O-S, B-I-B-L-O-S, biblos, all right? The second word is the word genesis, just like it sounds. So I'm, I'm going to give you it in the, in the in the noun form, but G-E-N-E-S-I-S, right? So in the Greek, it'd be a little bit different, but it's Genesis, word Genesis. The book of the Genesis. Now, if you are a Jew, and most Jews at the time would be reading not Hebrew, they'd be reading the Greek version of the Old Testament, and you read a story that starts off the Biblos of the Genesis, what does that sound like to you? What's it sound like? It's like the book of the Genesis, right? Like it instantly triggers your mind to the first book of the Bible. So in other words, what Matthew is, seems to be doing intentionally 
is saying, hey, the story of our race and the story of our nation has started here, got off track, it's restarting again. We've got a new genesis. Something's happening and it's tied to the man I'm about to introduce you to. The second fill in the blank is, um, I'm going to put it backwards, but son of Abraham and son of David. So he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, that's how I should have done it, and then the son of Abraham. But we'll just do it the other way. Son of Abraham, son of David. Now, of course, these two people are great leaders in Israel's history that represent important parts of their story, and they both come with power-packed promises made from God to them about the future. There in your note sheet, we'll look at this more next week, but Genesis 12, when, when God first calls Abraham to follow him, leave his land, this is what he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. In other words, you'll be famous and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse ones, I'll protect you. And then he says this, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now don't catch, don't miss that. What God is telling Abraham is that I'm choosing you, and because I'm choosing you, I'm going to bless you. But you need to understand this. This is not all about you. This is about the whole world. That you are going to be a conduit of my blessing. I'm choosing you so I can bless the whole world. Now, the question is, you know, how's that going to happen? And when he first tells him, of course, we have no idea. Somehow, through his descendants, through his family, through his nation, the whole world's going to get blessed. The second uh, key person in this is David, right? And of course, if you remember the story of David, at one point, God gave David a promise that through his family line, think genealogy, through his family line, that one day a great king would come, think Lord of the Rings, a great king would come who will rule all of the earth. So a great example would be Psalm 89. This is God speaking here. And, and God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your line, David, forever and make your throne firm through all generations. I will appoint him, that is your son, to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. And so there was this promise made to David that through his line, a great king would come who would rule all of creation. And so as you move into the first century, at the time of Jesus, Jews were asking how these promises were going to be fulfilled. They were waiting for these promises. How is this? Rome's in charge. We have been decimated now for hundreds of years. For all but a hundred years, we've been under foreign rule. How is this going to happen? How is the kingdom of God going to come? How is God going to keep his promise? Who will lead that? Will it be a Messiah? Will it be from the line of David? If so, how will it look like one Messiah or two? It's not like everyone agreed. There was a lot of different opinions. But they were scouring the scriptures, at least many people were, saying, how is this going to happen? And what Matthew is saying is the man I'm about to introduce to you comes from the right bloodlines. Like Aragorn, he comes from the right line. 
He is a son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He fulfills the royal requirements. And then number the three, the third fill in the blank is Jesus the Messiah. Now, like I said, in some of your texts, they'll say Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus the Messiah is actually a better translation. Um, the, the word Jesus, the name Jesus, is the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua, the great leader of the Old Testament. By the way, it was a very popular name when Jesus was around. It was kind of like John today, you know? It was very popular. It's, it kind of throws you. When you're reading ancient documents, there's always these Jesuses running around. It kind of throws you because we're kind of just used to one Jesus, right? Unless you're, you know, uh, like if you come from a Hispanic culture, then you have a lot of Jesuses. But if you're from, if you're, if you're, if you're not from that culture, like we don't, you know, like in English, you don't, you know, it's like, hey, I thought I called my son Jesus, you know, like a bad idea, you know. So, um, but when you read first century Judaism, Jesus was very, just like Mary was a very popular name. Mary's all over the place. So Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. And that's going to become an important part of his story. So his first name, Yahweh is salvation. Um, The second Christ is not a name, as a lot of you know, it's a title. So as time went on, even in the New Testament, you can see this progressing. In the New Testament, as time goes on, everyone calls him Jesus Christ so much, it almost becomes eventually like a last name. But it's early on, it's not that, it's a title. Christ is uh, the English form of the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew for Mashiach, right? Anointed. So in the Old Testament, when God would call priests, when God would call kings, remember like David was anointed. It was a sign of God's calling, his empowering. And so the ultimate king that would come from the line of David would be the anointed one. It just became a shorthand for the great king. So when you see Christ, you should think Messiah, think king, the great king. It's a royal term. And so in these eight, I mean, it's like a, eight Greek words, with eight Greek words that has no verb in the Greek. It's not even a sentence. In eight Greek words, Matthew tells us where this story is going. I want to tell you about someone named God is Salvation. And he is the great king. He comes from the right line. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And he is the one that's come to rescue our race and to be the fulfillment of all of both human and Israeli history. Eight words. And here's what I want you to catch. We just took some time to break it down, right? Because we're stupid. Because we're 21st century. Because we're Americans, right? If you are a Jew, you read eight words, you get it. Eight words. It is crystal clear what this claim is about. This is what the story is about. And the rest of the genealogy is going to prove he's not making it up. Now, next week, we're going to come back and we're going to deal more with the genealogy. I promise it won't be boring. I know some of you are just going, I'm waiting for Easter. Uh, I'm just like... (laughs) I am not coming back next week for all those names. I promise you it will be worth it, all right? Now, as we, uh, as we kind of bring this to, I, it's very hard for me to teach without being practical, right? It's like, 
Okay, so that's great history, some great understanding, some great intro, but, but for me, I just always need to, okay, what does this mean for us, right? So I want to wrap this up with two important insights there. It's called Matthew's Message, uh, and I'm going to challenge you right now. And, um, and so here we go. Number one, uh, the first thing I want you to understand, the first insight is that Jesus is different. Now uh, you say, um, different than what? Different than what you think. One of the claims that Matthew is making is Strider is Aragorn. And when you first meet Strider, it's like, that's kind of a stretch. And when you first say, hey, Jesus from Fillmore (laughs) is king of creation. They're like, uh, could you come again? And one of his claims is that, hey, I know, I know it doesn't look like it. I know that he's not what you expected. But I'm telling you, he is the one that was promised. And he is going to bring the kingdom of God. And your whole life depends on how you respond to this man. He's different. But he's not just different for first century Jews. He's different for us. We, we, you know, we all have the tendency to recreate Jesus in our own image. To see him through a lens. We don't even mean to do this. Let me, let me give you a great example. Um, back in the Enlightenment, when the Enlightenment kicked off, so in the 1600s, 1700s, you know, up to that point, um, you know, everyone studying the Gospels basically believes the Gospels. They believe they're accurate history, right? But when the Enlightenment comes along, there's this whole anti-supernatural uh, uh, kind of movement, right, within, within the world. And uh, in college or high school, you remember this. And so, um, and so, and so uh, scholars begin to come along and say, you know what, we, we know now. We know, God, we know God is like, if there's a God, he's like a deist God. He doesn't really interfere. So we know that supernatural things happen. We, we know that people don't, don't multiply bread. We know people don't walk on water. We know people don't rise from the dead. We know water doesn't turn to white. We know that that's ancient stuff. That's mythology. That's religious stuff. So we need, what we need to do is we need to go back to the gospel, and we need to separate fact from fiction here. We need, to do, we, we need to go on a search for the historical Jesus. We need to separate the Jesus of faith from the Jesus of history. And that led to a 200 or 300 year kind of, kind of search for, you know, that scholars would you know, try to go back and try, let's find the real Jesus. And you know the irony of it? That first phase of that thing you know, kind of went on until the early 20th century. Until one day they kind of realized that all of a sudden, that the Jesus they discovered that was the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, was a lot like a liberal German biblical scholar. That without meaning to, they had recreated Jesus in their own image. He's a nice, liberal guy, kind of a modern-thinking, forward-thinking, love-your-neighbor, kind of a nice guy. And all of a sudden they realize that, hey, there's a problem with that because historically, Romans don't crucify nice guys that tell people to love people. Like, that makes no sense. There in your note sheet, and of course this happens in our culture all the time, right? We're always, 
It seems like every time you turn around, there's a new, you know, PBS, Discovery Channel, you know, thing, we found this new thing. Trust me, there's nothing new. <laughs> there's new theories about old, nothing new. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, you know, Da Vinci Code, uh, you know, all these new things, you know, uh, the Jesus Seminar, yeah, we're voting with beads of which things he really said. Um, but I mean, go to Costco, and every year there's a new book on, we've done, we found the real Jesus, you know. So, I love what Philip Yancey says. It's, it's a good book, too. Throughout this series, I'll be recommending some books that will help probably get outside of our 21st century mindset and take us back that are accessible books that, are, you know, that, that I think you would enjoy. But, but one I would recommend is Philip Yancey, The Jesus I Never Knew. And he says, modern scholarship further muddies the picture. If you peruse the academic books available at, at a seminary bookstore, you may encounter Jesus, and here are some of the different Jesuses you'll hear about in our culture today. As a political revolutionary, as a magician who married Mary Magdalene, um, as a Galilean charismatic, as a rabbi, as a peasant Jewish cynic, as a Pharisee, as an anti-Pharisee Essene, as an eschatological prophet, as a hippie in the world of Augustine yuppies, as a hallucinogenic leader of a sacred mushroom cult. And then he says, serious scholars write these works with little sign of embarrassment. And it's absolutely true. But can I tell you something? This happens in the church too. That we all come to Jesus with our preconceptions. We all have our filters. Some of us have the flannel graph filter. Yeah. Some of us have the animated filter. Right? Some of us have the church filter. There's a certain theological filters, right? So we, we all bring, and it's impossible not to. It's like we, we all see through a filter. That's why even for this, this series, I called it uh, capturing a, a, a true image of Jesus, instead of the true image. We all see through a glass darkly. Like we're, we don't want to get this perfectly right, but... Our goal in this series is to be as intentional as possible to go back to the first century and to go back to the Word and to take the Jesus of our image and to run it through the grid of, does that line up with the Word? Does that line up with first century we know about first century? And can we take off some of the filters that have built up over time that keep us from seeing Jesus and being radically transformed by him? Let me give you an example. Like in evangelical circles, kind of Bible-believing, American evangelical circles, often Jesus comes out for many people as a right-wing, Republican, flag-waving, nice white guy. <laughs> Do you see any problem with that? Right. Like, like even category, like first century... Like, what do you even do with that? But you see it in the secular world, too. Like, in the secular world today, all all the time you hear people say, oh, Jesus would never say that. Jesus would never do that. Jesus was about love. Jesus was about tolerance. Jesus was about peace. Jesus would never say that. And I want to say, have you ever read anything about Jesus? Because he's really not near as nice as you think he is. Yeah, he's mercy, he's grace, he's compassion, he's forgiveness, and he is 
fierce. He is scary. He's in your face. He is demanding. He is both and. But often what we do is we look through our lens and what happens, remember we talked about paradigms back in the last series? A paradigm is a way of looking at life, but what paradigms do is they filter out what doesn't fit with our theory. And so here's what I can promise you. I can promise you in this series, you're going to be challenged. And I'm going to promise you at times you're going to feel uncomfortable because if someone threatens our image of Jesus, that feels a little threatening. But the question is always, this is not like, it doesn't matter really what I think. The question is, does your Jesus match up with what the word portrays him? And does your, your Jesus fit at all with what we know of first century Judaism? The people he's talking to. Because if, if, if Jesus doesn't fit at all in the first century, and he doesn't fit at all in the word, we got a problem. Because I'm telling you, Jesus wasn't going around talking to hear himself talk. He was talking to real people who understood and who he was trying to connect with and get a message. The second point, and this is a fun one, is that Jesus is the new Genesis. And I, I love this. I mean, we saw how Matthew makes this point. He starts his book out, the Biblos of the Genesaos, the Biblos of the Genesis. Like he's making this tie that as we have the start of a story of a race and we got derailed and we're in this fallen world, so one has come into the world and it's a new Genesis. Something new is happening. God is breaking into human history. Something is happening with this person that's going to be almost like a new creation. There's a new Genesis. Jesus will call it the kingdom of God. The long-promised kingdom is breaking into time and space. You have a chance to start over. Now, this is powerful because Matthew knew this firsthand. You started the day with a story, right? This, this man who'd grown up, his parents wanted him to go one way. He wanted to go another way. It was a temptation. It was a compromise. He knew it, but it, the... The, the riches, the wealth, the influence, it was so powerful. He decided to go, but now he feels locked in. I think that was Matthew's story. Matthew's a Jew. He grew up in a Jewish community. He probably had a Jewish mother, a Jewish father that had great aspirations. His name was Levi. Maybe he was from the tribe of Levi for all we know. But we know one thing. We know tax gatherers was a hard job to get, first of all. You had to bid for that job. It was a hard job to get. Secondly, we know you made good money. And third, we knew you had to compromise so much that you were considered, by definition, outside of the spiritual realm. You'd betrayed your country. You'd betrayed your God. You'd sold your soul. And yet, we're going to see in Matthew that one day, Jesus is going to walk into this man's life who thinks his destiny is set and there's no way out. And he is going to connect with Matthew and he is actually going to give him a new name. 
He's going to go from Levi to Matthew. Nothing wrong with Levi. But Levi was who he was. And Matthew, who he's going to be. And Matthew means gift of God. And when Jesus walks into someone's life, he gives them an opportunity for a new name and a new future and a new genesis. It is no longer the old life. It is something new and it's going to be radical and it's going to demand everything you have. There is no halfway house. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to be all in. You can listen, you can follow, you can listen from a distance, you can like him, you can check him on Facebook, I'm a fan, but sooner or later, you're either in or you're out, but if you're in, it is a new genesis, it is a new day, nothing has changed. As Paul would say later, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation, right? It is a new genesis. The old has gone, the new has come, the kingdom of God has broken in, the power of the kingdom has come, that the Messiah has shown up just like God had promised. And here's the thing, and here's the thing, then when we catch this, that you know what Jesus did after after he reached into Matthew's life and said, I want you. He said, and I don't just want you, Matthew, I want your friends. Could you have a party? Could you just throw a party with all your, like, far from God friends? Because I, I would love to come to your house because when the kingdom of God breaks into human history, that's what it looks like. It looks like God breaking into things that are broken and, and things begin to get healed and things begin to change and forgiveness begins to come. And so he says, hey, could you throw a party? I don't just want you. I want your friends. You see, when Jesus comes into a life, it is a genesis. It's going to cost us everything. Like we're going to learn later, it's it's what we, we sell everything we have and go buy the field for the treasure that's there. What Jesus is going to say in Matthew. But if you're in, you're in. And nothing will ever be the same. Let's pray. Thank God we're excited. We are excited. And we, we want more of you. And God, we don't, we don't want the Jesus of our imagination or the Jesus of our youth or the Jesus of our middle age or the Jesus of our old. We want a new. We, we want to know you as you are. Jesus, one of the things you said is that no one knows the Son except the Father and those to whom the Father reveals him. And so in this series, we come and we come, we humbly ask, Father, that you would reveal your Son to us. And that as we see him and as we receive him and as we listen and as we follow, and it's so often counterintuitive and as it demands so much, we pray we will listen and follow that we would never be the same. And we pray, God, as we worship now, as we bring you our gifts, our tithes, our offerings, may you use us to build a place where Jesus is revealed unfiltered. We pray it in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me? (laughs) 
Well, we are off and running, aren't we? It's going uh, to be exciting what God does. Every week we gather in his name. Jesus said, call no man teacher, for you have one teacher, and that's the Lord. And we gather in his name and the authority of his word. We're listening for his voice. Amen? What, what is he saying? And uh, may we be quick to listen and follow, even in this series when Jesus really challenges some of your images. And you find that, wow, he may not be as safe as I thought. I think of a line from Chronicles of Narnia when they ask about Aslan, is he safe? <laughs> safe? No, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. And we're going to find this. We want to discover this, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about the lion of the tribe. We're going to talk about the story that God has been telling, and it's going to be awesome to be together. I hope you can be with us. As you go, a couple things. Uh, number one is that don't forget, we're starting the water fast. So just to be clear, this is a, we're, we're, we're drinking water. We're eating food, right? We're eating food. I remember a few years ago, some guy called me about Wednesday, like, I'm getting really hungry. Um, like, I, it's really, are you serious? All week long? Um, so yeah, we're, uh, we're just drinking water. We're eating normally. Don't forget, if you want uh, your bands, they're actually printed this week, this time with our, our drink water on them. Uh, and so if you want those, you're at the door. If you want to pick up one of the labels, um, you can purchase those at the bookstore. And then want to really remind you, in just a couple of weeks, Easter is coming. And this is a time we want to be praying and saying, God, is there someone in my life that you came after me like Matthew so I could go after them, so I could bring my friends? So inside your program, we've got this uh, invite, Unfiltered, the Reach of the Resurrection. And so we will be staying in Matthew. We're going to be going to Matthew 28, the end of the story. This first two weeks we're studying at the beginning. We'll jump to the end to see where the story is going and, and uh, what the resurrection is all about. So it's going to be great for us as a church. It'll be great for those who don't know Jesus yet. So be praying. If you need more of these invite cards, uh, they're out at the starting point uh, kiosk outside. So don't forget, if you need prayer after the service, over here to my left. May the Lord be with you this week. And may Jesus of Nazareth, who has been raised to the right hand of God and currently rules over all of creation, may that Jesus, the Jesus of Israel, may he be with you as he is with me, that together he would take off lenses that have built up over the years, that week by week we would see him more clearly, we'd understand a little bit more what it means to follow him, and as a result, we would be transformed to be like him. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. <laughs>